Well, hello again. This is Political Dharma, and I'm Alan. The uh, song that you heard was Compliments of Joey Helpish and Patty Rose. You can look up Patty Rose online and find more of his music. He also has a podcast in which he does interviews with uh, local people here in um, Eugene, Oregon. Politicians, candidates, uh, interesting people from around the area. Well, last week on Political Dharma, I was talking about progressivism and socialism and looking back toward the turn towards conservatism in the 1980s, particularly uh, the advent of neoliberalism, that is the rollback of welfare benefits and union protections, uh, the cutting of budgets for social welfare provisions, uh, deregulation, all that kind of stuff that happened in the 1980s, both in the United States and in European countries, and saying that in progressivism, there is usually the story that this was a political move, that there was a big political change, say with the election of Ronald Reagan, and then that led toward changes in the economy that affected people in various negative ways and led to the world we're now in where both parties, the Democrats and the Republicans are following a neoliberal program for the most part, although things may have changed slightly in recent years, mostly due to the financial crisis of 2008 and the public reaction to that, and now to the pandemic and the need for the government to put lots and lots of money into uh, helping people, uh, demonstrating that it's possible for governments to do that when they absolutely need to, and they could be doing it. Otherwise, it's just a matter of political will, perhaps. A lot of uh, institutional obstacles as well. Anyway, so the progressive story would be that there was a political change, and that led to the economic change. A more socialist story would be that first there was an economic change having to do with capitalism's pursuit of profits that in the uh, as the European nations recovered from World War II, they began becoming, and Japan as well, becoming more competitive with the United States, which led to some reduction in profits overall and the necessity for capitalist firms and investors to look for new sources of profits and markets and labor, uh, cheaper labor, in order to maintain the profit levels that they had become accustomed to or to increase profits where possible. So we have this globalization that in turn led to the uh, election of politicians that would do the bidding of major corporations like that. Anyway, so two different stories, one driven by politics, one driven more by economics and economic change, the pursuit of profit uh, in particular, the fundamental drive of capitalism. But I wanted to emphasize and reemphasize today that I'm not posing these as absolute distinctions. I mean, for one thing, lots of people call themselves progressives who recognize the dangers of uh, pursuing profits at all costs. And a lot of socialists or people who would call themselves socialists don't necessarily want a fundamental change to the economy, but want uh, more uh, programs to help people and more regulation and things like that. So I would say there's more of a spectrum and the definitions of the words are very flexible. <laughs> People use them for different reasons. But the distinction I'm trying to make is between a point of view in which we see the end point 
as a capitalist economy with a good amount of regulation to protect the environment, to protect labor rights, to protect uh, protect social the social welfare in particular. Social welfare is kind of already uh, a word that's been captured for using to say welfare programs, right? Programs that help people, but I mean social benefit in general that we could regulate capitalism enough that we could lead good lives and still enjoy the benefits of a capitalist economy. That's one point of view. The other point of view is that we need to go beyond the social welfare state uh, with its uh, regulations and welfare benefits and the rest um, to do something that changes the fundamental nature of capitalism from the profit-seeking more towards actually running institutions specifically to benefit the public. Do we need to do that? How far do we need to go? Those are the questions that I'm trying to raise. And I'm more on the end of saying we need to fundamentally reform capitalism. Is that possible? Or is the alternative model of just moving uh, toward back toward a New Deal type era where we had the government intervention in helping people and regulating the economy that seemed to work for a couple of decades, at least for the majority of people in the United States. Here, people often bring up the example of the Nordic countries in northern, uh, just north of Western Europe, like Sweden, Denmark, and Norway in particular, and say, well, these have been successful in maintaining a stable economy, high standards of living, a lot of happiness among their public, because they've been able to build extensive states with intervention in the economy, not changing capitalism per se, but having a lot of public institutions devoted to public benefit, such as hospitals, schools, um, I'm trying to think of some examples that wouldn't apply generally. Oh, public provision of energy, uh, major, major uh, productive enterprises, like in Norway, I think they have a public, uh, the aluminum in industry is publicly owned as well as the oil and gas industry. So uh, a lot of public provision of services of one kind or another, rather than the private provision through capitalist organizations. So a lot of public institutions in the economy, a lot of regulation, a lot of protection of labor, extensive social welfare state that goes beyond just providing for the poor to providing benefits for everybody like health care and education and uh, cash allowances for the parents of children. So a lot of, uh, a lot, uh, the, the kind of model that those who would want to defend the idea that we can maintain some degree of capitalism for its supposed efficiency and uh, innovation capacities, while also having state intervention to make people's lives better, is that is that possible? Well, I'm not an expert on the Nordic countries by any means, and the reading I've done in it, uh, indicates to me that you would have to be to really have a <laughs> solid grasp of what's going on because each of these countries, and we're going to include uh, Iceland and Finland as well, each of them has its own history, its own culture, its own political institutions, its own way of approaching the problems of capitalism. But in general, they follow the same kind of model and they've all been um, better off 
than a lot of other European countries, let alone the United States, or the, I should say the public in general. So you can have a high level of wealth, like in the United States, but not a high level of public well-being because all that wealth is being channeled to a very few. All right, so how did the crisis of the 1980s, that is the turn towards neoliberalism, affect these Nordic countries? Here, as I say, I'm not an expert, and I've done some reading. Here's my impressions, and you can certainly argue with me if you choose to. In fact, I'd like to hear from people who are more knowledgeable about this. The effect has been similar to the effect in the West, in the rest of Europe and in the United States, similar in the sense that there's been a movement in a more conservative direction, but it hasn't been as extensive as in the United States or Western European countries, such as Germany or France or England. It's been more resilient. Now that's hard to say exactly why, it's a number of reasons, but it has been affected. It has been affected by the neoliberal term. There's been some drawback in uh, public budgets in order to, well, the, the, the crisis of the 1970s going into the 1980s was one in which there was worldwide uh, economic stagnation, that is growth levels were not um, increasing as rapidly. There was high levels of unemployment. There was a lot of competition in markets. This affected countries worldwide. And how the Nordic countries dealt with it was they, well, they had, um, they, they did a lot of what the other countries did, only not as extensively. There was, they introduced more competition. They reduced government benefits. There was more, um, there was less protections for the labor force. They were more subject to market forces. So they did a lot of the things the other countries did. The big exception is in their provision of social welfare benefits. And that was because social welfare benefits are universal in scope. That is, they affect just about every citizen of those countries. They're not targeted towards people who are unavoidably poor. That is, they're unemployed for reasons that are that they can't help. Uh, so it's not targeted specifically at the very poor or the disabled or the very old or anything like that. There's a lot of public benefits that go to citizens across the board. So people are much more attached to those kind of benefits, as you can see is in the United States with the, the, broad, the broadest social welfare programs are the most resistant to political cutbacks in the United States. And I'm thinking specifically about social security, even though there's been a lot of attempts to cut back social security and privatize some aspects of it and some success in that. The fact that most voters, uh, a large segment of voters, much more than in the general public, are over the age of 62 and or either collecting Social Security or near collecting Social Security gives it a voter block that makes it resistant. So a big voter block benefiting from a particular welfare provision or welfare program is going to be more resistant to change, which means as a lesson that instead of focusing on social benefits for particular constituencies, it's better to build welfare policies for broad constituencies, which is one of the reasons why I continue to promote a universal basic income. I think a program that benefits 
everybody is going to be more resilient than one that is targeted on particular parts of the population that can always be attacked is undeserving or exploiting the program or something like that. Getting off track a little bit, as usual. So the Nordic countries were affected by this neoliberal term. There was the rise of white right-wing parties and their leftist, center-leftist parties uh, began to turn in a somewhat more conservative direction. There was some loosening of protections for the labor force in an attempt to make their economies more efficient. But they didn't go as far as the other countries did. And it's hard to say exactly why other than cultural and political institutions and citizens benefiting from this. It's also the case that these countries benefited a lot from exports. They're just on the edge of the central capitalist uh, economies of Western Europe, and so somewhat protected from that. They don't have real high military budgets, as other Western European countries don't either, unlike the United States. But they rely a lot on fossil fuels, and here in Norway in particular, they did really well transitioning through the neoliberal term of the 1980s, 1990s, uh, because their economy was propped up by the fact that they had access to oil and gas in the North Sea. That gave them the ability to maintain a lot of uh, government programs without cutting back as much as other countries did. On the other hand, the fact that they're relying on extracting fossil fuels means that they are big contributors to the climate crisis. Uh, considering their size in terms of population, they're up there with the United States in terms of uh, adding to uh, carbon to the atmosphere. So not a good model to rely on in, in that sense, that you can buffer your economy by uh, relying on a lot of fossil fuels. But natural resources, yes. And here, they're, they're also give us a lesson because Norway has been moving towards a lot of government investment in renewable energies like wind and solar, particularly wind turbines in the North Sea there. And they're trying to transition away from extracting oil and gas to the use of wind turbines and to export that by laying cables across the, uh, across the water there. I forget which part of the uh, Atlantic Ocean that, that it's called, uh, probably the North Sea again. But anyway, running cables to England and other parts of Europe uh, Europe to export energy again, this time electricity generated by wind turbines, which gives us some hope that the Green New Deal is a good direction to go here in the United States uh, because we could be net exporters of energy, uh, say to Mexico or even to Canada, who knows, at least generating enough for ourselves and st stopping our reliance on fossil fuels. Okay, I'm getting on my soapbox and a little bit away from the story I'm trying to tell. So to sum up, the Nordic countries were affected by the neoliberal term, but they were more resilient and more resistant to it for various reasons, which goes to show that that is a good model to move toward. Um, I'm not making the proposition that we have to choose between moving toward a progressive vision, by which I, I mean the you know, increased social welfare benefits, increased protection for unions, more regulation of the economy, more maybe more public provision of services, probably. Um, but I think it has to move yet further towards 
a way to temper the profit motive with more social, socially beneficial um, types of economic institutions that have that as their primary motive rather than profit-seeking. And here, I think one thing we can learn from Denmark in particular, which is very pertinent to the United States, is that a Denmark, in Denmark, I think it was Denmark, they have a lot of cooperatives, that is, businesses run by the, the people who work in them, or businesses run for the benefit of consumers who are members of the cooperative, or housing cooperatives. When the government wants to build affordable housing, it doesn't uh, build like public housing and rent it out. It builds uh, housing and then turns it over to cooperatives through one mechanism or another. I, I don't really know the details of it. Um, and then the tenants of the housing run it themselves. Now, the reason I bring that up is because in Denmark, that sector was very resistant to privatization, whereas in other countries, there is more of an effort to introduce competition to the provision of public services or to take um, some areas of consumer provision of services to the public, some areas out of the public sector and into the private sector. In Denmark, that was resisted by people who were in cooperatives because they already had control over those particular um, workplaces or their housing or whatever, whatever it might have been. They felt a sense of ownership, whereas in nations where the government runs programs, people don't have as much of a sense of ownership, and it's easier for uh, private corporations to say, look, we can step in and do a better job. It's an easy transition. People feel kind of remote from that unless they're very dependent on the provision of public services. But people can be persuaded that the private sector might provide these things more efficiently. Whereas if the workers or the consumers or the um, residents actually have an ownership stake and control over institutions, they are much more resistant to that. So one thing we can learn from this from the, for the United States is that it's good to have, uh, rather than moving toward the public ownership of key types of industries, it's good to move toward worker-controlled type industries and also perhaps consumer cooperatives and things like that, because it will be in the future when there's more crises in capitalism, it will be more resistance to rollbacks. And that's one of the things we want to do. The fight in the Nordic countries, as well as in the rest of the world, between the, the forces of capitalism trying to roll back the regulatory state and uh, the resistance to it, is by no means over. Uh, there was a hiatus, maybe a pause in things due to the pandemic when governments had to spend a lot of money. I think I mentioned this earlier. But as the pandemic dies down, we see in the United States the return to you know, more raw capitalism, um, the pausing of evictions is pausing. We're pausing the pausing. <laughs> We're stopping the pause of eviction. So people are subject to eviction now. We're not giving checks out to people in general. They, we don't have enhanced unemployment benefits anymore. We don't have our increased child um, allowances or the uh, increased food stamp allowances. All these things are going away. Uh, but we, what we'd like is 
a, a system when the forces of capitalism, we come out of this emergency and the forces of capitalism looking for profits start to try to pressure government to roll back the gains that people have made, uh, it'll be harder to do. Making a long story short, we want to make any type of move toward a uh, beyond a social welfare regulatory state into socialism, one in which people actually have a stake in institutions rather than simply having them government owned or government managed. Now, there can be a mixture of things like that, but the model of socialism we should be looking toward is one in which workers themselves or uh, tenants or others actually control the institutions that they depend upon directly rather than via the mediation of the government, particularly because in the United States, we don't have a very democratic society, so the public in general doesn't have as much control over the government. Um, where am I at? It's about 920. Uh, I think I covered a lot of what I want to cover. So Nordic countries, um, they did a lot better than the United States. So that gives us information that moving toward a, oh, I know what I wanted to say, interrupting my own summary here. What I wanted to say is that the United States has a political culture that has uh, a lot of fear of big government, big government. And we've been that way since the very start, right? We had a revolution against a government that was restricting individual freedoms. At least that was the ideological um, rationalization of the American Revolution. Wanted to fight against the King of England and his ministers that were trying to control our economy to the detriment of the people here trying to regulate businesses, determine where we could sell things in other parts of the world, and so on and so forth. So it was rebellion against heavy-handed government intervention in the economy, and that part of our culture has always persisted. The idea of individual freedom, individual independence, and the resistance towards larger government has always been a big threat of this and can persuade people who are on the fence, who are not directly benefiting from moving towards government uh, help uh, people or may not see that they're relying on government help, like the famous examples of people who say, I don't want the government interfering with my Social Security or my Medicare, which is provided to them via the government. Um, people have this idea that America is based on freedom. So when the Soviet Union failed or when the Soviet Union took off in the first place and became much more government heavy and never seemed to move beyond the phase of government controlled economy to the phase of worker controlled economy um, from what they, what lots of people call state socialism to a more communist society, which was the projection. That became a negative example, reinforcing the American uh, adherence or um, attachment to the idea that big government is bad. So to get around that, I think this idea that uh, instead of looking toward build, uh, public institutions that, that is taking over industries or the provision of public services to have institutions run by the government necessarily, where possible, they should be run by the people themselves who are directly involved in those institutions. 
So cooperatives, worker controlled enterprises, all that kind of thing would be more the model we'd look at, which touches on, um, I'm not getting any comments, so I may as well continue for a few more minutes, even though I'm going beyond what I intended to say, which touches on a debate between different sides of socialism. On the one hand, you had a more Marxist form of socialism, and on the other hand, the libertarian or anarchist form of socialism. Maybe I'm giving you too much information for one show, but I think I can make this fairly simple and easy to assimilate. The Marxist idea was that first you take over the state, whether by democratic means, as seemed possible in England and the United States. Remember, Marx came before the Russian Revolution. He died about 30 years before it happened. Or later on, through uh, the revolutionary uh, seizing of government control, which happened in the Russian Revolution and in other countries, usually which were not very um, advanced in capitalism. I don't know if that's the right word, advanced. I guess it is. Uh, more agricultural-based societies like Russia was at the time. Uh, anyway, so one idea was you gain control of the government, and then the government gains control of the economy, and then you gradually move towards turning it over towards the people themselves. That fits in with a model in which we gradually move toward a greater regulatory, social welfare, public provision of services. We move toward that, and then at some point beyond that. The other tradition has been, rather than moving through that phase where the government runs a lot of economic institutions itself, we would, we would simply move from the capitalist economy to the communist society in which uh, workers take over their own enterprises. They don't rely on the state to do that. In my mind, uh, neither of those is particularly viable in the United States for various reasons, but I do see a combination as possible and this speaks especially to this American attachment to uh, individual freedom and fear of large government, which is that you work towards gaining control of the state. What the attempt is not to then build the state further, but to start to reduce its size and turn things more over towards workers and tenants and the people themselves, to empower the people themselves rather than more empowerment of the state, rather than building up the state further, starting to scale it back and uh, turn power more over to people directly. Now, I don't know that it's going to be easy to do any of these things because, as I've repeatedly said, our political system does not give the people a lot of power. So in the first place, we have to work towards greater democracy, actually having the right to vote count by giving us more choices so that we can move into whatever we decide to move toward. Um, so I use that word so a lot. Sum up. All right. What was my point in these last two shows? I don't think progressivism understood as maintaining a uh, capitalist core in the economy is going to be sufficient to address the crises of climate change and environmental degradation and the continual crises in the economy and the lower and declining standards of a lot of working people or people who depend upon work 
whether they can whether they can find jobs or not. I don't think it's going to reverse that. I do think we can give more people protections from that kind of raw capitalism, and that's what the progressive vision is uh, in it in its broadest sense, including the most people who would call themselves progressive. I'm thinking here of people like Elizabeth Warren, who at the same time they say they want things like putting workers on the boards of corporations, also say they're capitalists to the core. I think she said that uh, if she understood socialism, she probably wouldn't say that, or maybe she'd say it anyway for political reasons, but it's not entirely true. Getting off the track again. We have to have a model of what we're working toward, and I think we need to think about moving beyond the progressive vision of regulation and protecting unions and providing social welfare benefits and possibly um, taking some industries out of private hands into the public sphere. We have to move beyond that to a model of socialism in which the profit motive is not the key factor in organizing the economy for a number of reasons because that's the only way we can start, in my mind anyway, we can start mitigating and reversing the trend of climate change. That's the only way we can maintain a stable economy. That's the only way we can uh, reduce the imperative to continually produce and consume more rather than simply saying what we want is decent lives for everybody and more happiness. Things don't bring happiness. Safety, community, well-being in general. That's what brings happiness. And that's what I would make me happy to see us going in that direction. So it's about 9.30. No comments today. But if you're watching this later, on, uh, or if you think about it later, if you're watching on its the recorded vision on YouTube or listening on a podcast platform, I do invite you to give me your comments uh, on the Facebook page. Still Alan on politics because I keep forgetting to change it to political dharma. Haven't decided really what I want to do about that uh, as far as having a Facebook page still. Um, or on the uh, YouTube channel. Probably better to go political dharma YouTube channel and put your comments under this video. Comments, questions, I welcome them. And hopefully see you again next week. Not sure what I'm going to be talking about, but uh, looking forward to to being back and let's let's hope the pandemic is over so we can get together face to face again all right goodbye now